thank you for joining us. This is Randy Cox, and next to me is my brilliant and lovely wife, Kristen Cox. How are you doing? Hi, everyone. It's fun to be here with you today. Yeah, you got your workout in this morning. You feeling good? I got my workout in, and I have a morning routine, and my goal has been to do that every day this week, and I've been doing it, and it really starts my day off right. So, awesome. But today we're here to talk about some exciting topics. Yeah, so, so we have been doing, you've been sharing a series of in-depth articles every two weeks in the fulcrum. Um, you've had different series. We're about to get started with a new series, and we thought we might want to switch it up. Instead of it being in-depth articles, we thought we might want to do this audio or podcast style to see how our audience likes it, to see if they like this format. So uh, today we're going to be talking about the origin story, the big picture of your two books. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to, you know, that you co-authored with uh, Dr. Ishai Ashlag. So this Stop Decorating the Fish was book one. And then book two, which we, you and Ishai sometimes talk about as your workbook, um, that was The World of Decorating the Fish. All right, so Chris, could you take us all the way back to the origin story before there were the two books? Mm-hmm. Like what was the context that you were in? And how did you even come up with the the business, like the metaphor at the beginning of the first book mm-hmm. with the, the fish decorating? So I, at the time, was running the Office of Management and Budget for the state of Utah under Governor Herbert. And in that role, I would review and look at all of the budget requests coming in, which were hundreds of them. And I could start to see some patterns, right? Really great people, great intentions. So this isn't a blame game because honestly, I did all of these as well in a future life. And I could start seeing these patterns uh, as people came up, they had problems they were trying to solve and they had solutions they were bringing to the table. And the patterns and trends I saw started to happen really consistently. And that is how the Seductive Seven came out. And what I would see is that people would jump to solutions without having real clarity on the problem they were trying to solve for the actual people they were serving. And the Seductive Seven really are often about solving administrative problems, um, solving problems for our bureaucracy, our organization that we hope indirectly, we think conceptually or in some vague way will help our end user. But they distract us, they take an immense amount of time and energy. And the why I use the word seductive is because They really are alluring. They're around us all the time. Vendors pitch them. Sometimes we get acknowledgments and recognitions for using them. But even more challenging is that sometimes they're actually tactics or part of the solution, right? They're ingredients in a recipe. So we actually may need, one of the Seductive Seven is more data. We actually do need data. But we need specific data to answer specific questions for specific people we're trying to serve, not just set up a massive new data system which can distract an organization for years and cost millions and millions of dollars. So when we jump to the Seductive Seven, we fall into what we call the illusion of progress. We feel like we're making a change. Um, It feels like an important change, but it doesn't move the needle for the people we serve or for the shareholders or in the public sector for the taxpayers. before we go to the seductive seven, like there, basically, there's this, there's this larger idea of fish decorating, or <laughs> you know the illusion of progress, and then what you have done, you and Isha, you have found seven different ways yes. of fish decorating. Yeah, yeah, and the right? fish decorating comes from a parable, which is a really short little parable from the book, but essentially is that we're super busy 
all the time, doing things, making changes, launching initiatives, the illusion of progress, and yet the primary customer, those people were really charged to serve, they don't see any difference in the experience and the outcomes that they're actually having. Yeah, so you're busy, you're stressed out, you're actually getting things done, yeah. and yet at the end of all of that, Nothing changes. Nothing changes for the customer. Except for the customer. It may change for us. We have a bat, you know, cool new IT system or a whole new branding campaign. But the customer is sitting there saying, so what? So what? Did you think you were going to just start with like a short story, just the parable, and that was that? Or were you thinking like no, book level? No, it was always book level. I mean, the, the parable is just there to help people remember the story and how easy it is to jump into it. But the case studies are real. You know, we could write 10 volumes of case studies. I've been collecting them for years now. And it's not that people are bad, right? I do believe people do these things. Um, when I was doing them, I did them with all the best intentions. I think one reason we get stuck into them, and then we should tell the audience what they are, uh, is that we can we react and focus on what we know about, can see, experience, touch, you know, we know about something and we're going to react to that. It makes total sense. The challenge in, in a lot of our organizations where things are really happening, where the action is, is invisible to us. It's like all in operations or hidden policies and procedures. There's too many of them, so it feels so complex. We can't get our head around it. Um, and so we, we just can't really easily see the most important problem to solve. And it becomes its own discipline, which I think is so important. The discipline of solving the right problem. The seductive seven is the illusion that we're solving the right problem. So it started with the fatal four and then I started to see more and more patterns and it started then it ended with the seductive seven. And let's go through those for everyone if they're if they're not familiar. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things. You may need them at certain points in time, but they by themselves aren't the solution and have high opportunity costs if we're not focusing them on the right problem to solve. So the idea that I need more money could do a whole segment just on that. The idea that I need more technology or more data, or I need just to do another strategic plan uh, that nobody reads and goes onto a shelf. Uh, I need another reorganization, right? So somehow I reorg my resources and my org chart, somehow that will solve my problem. Uh, the idea that I need to do more training, communication, uh, you know, train my employees on how to do stuff even though the process itself is broken. Uh, the idea that I need more blaming or more accountability, that's really about shifting the responsibility for solving the problem to other people. Um, that That's such an important concept to understand, but that one happens a lot. We'll see it with uh, managers, hey, I just need a new accountability system for my employees, even though the employees are working in a system that is broken. So that's always a problem. You know, We always want to fix first what we have stewardship over before we shift the blame. Without so, so we've just gone through things that everybody listening is going to be familiar with, one or if not all of those mm -hmm. strategies for solving a problem. Mm -hmm. So without naming names, of course, as you think back, can you think of a, of an example or two where they were like something came to your across your desk? We have this problem, and this is our proposed solution, and you could clearly see. Oh, I mean, I can do it to myself. I, you know, I remember running a big agency back in Maryland. And we did some really good work there, but I remember putting out, you know, one of our first strategic plans, and it was one of those typical strategic plans that are super, super long, 
with a mission and a purpose and action steps, this litany of action steps, and then all these you know measures to hold people accountable to, to meet those action steps. But there was zero insight in my first strategic plan. There was zero insight about, for example, if you want to help people who have a disability achieve employment, just simply listing increased employment by 5% doesn't solve it. It's like, you know, buying a new scale but not changing your diet and exercise program. I mean, that doesn't help. Listing a bunch of action steps that are quite frankly pretty obvious to everyone doesn't help either. So my first strategic plan was not insightful. We have lots of ideas, but sometimes not a lot of insight um, in our strategic planning. So I, I mean, I was guilty of doing it until I learned more in my own career and theory of constraints, my own practices and and hard work. But it happens all the time. I see this a lot with data. I mean, I've seen states across the country set up massive data systems for education, for example, um, to have these unified information systems across workforce systems, higher ed and public ed. Not that that's a bad thing per se, but we've seen states spend tens of millions of dollars on these and not seeing any big change to education. And why is that? Just measuring things more or having access to endless piece of data and endless pieces of data is not where the insight is. The insight comes from, are you asking the right questions? And that's about a problem of us thinking. How do we think? How do we view the problem? How do we approach it? Uh, we're not just going to have a magical breakthrough solution just show up in the data if we're not know, if we don't know how to think about the data. So there's huge opportunity costs with this stuff. I mean, not just in terms of money, but imagine setting up a forty million dollar integrated IT system across multiple agencies. The time and energy that was used to put there was not being put in other places. Now, again, I'm not telling people not to do those things. I am saying though, if you don't know the person you're trying to solve for and the specific problem that person has and the insight of why can't that why isn't that being solved right now that's the more important question right why can't we what's blocking us from solving that problem for that specific person that's the kind of thinking and mindset we need to start shifting into is not just seductive seven illusion of progress but solving real problems for real people right and you you have come from like you were you were running a nonprofit. Uh, and then you've run several government agencies, so you're coming from that world. You're seeing all of these patterns in both of those worlds. But there's a lot of people who are listening who are from the business world, from the private sector. Yes. And you came across Ishai, who was from the private sector, who saw this is an isolated government. Like we do the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. We did it because he saw the seductive stuff. He goes, "Oh my gosh, that's that's what companies do, and we've seen it in companies." Um, you know. I've, work with some private sector companies that will jump into especially IT or you know new automation or new automation products but they're not removing as Dr. Goldratt would talk about significant limitations for people right they're just adding little features and benefits but they're not removing significant limitations for the people they serve so they don't get breakthrough results right and then it just becomes what we call red ocean the book hopefully you've all read it red ocean blue ocean you're just you know competing against everybody else in the in the same waters so the breakthroughs happen when we absolutely reject any of those as the starting place. We see those as tools that we may grab and pull into our solution. But the antidote to all of these that we saw in the private sector and in uh, private sector and public sector alike is getting back to very common sense approaches. Who do I serve? Who's my primary customer? 
What's their primary need? Why can't they solve it for themselves right now? And why can't the organization solve it right now? Gotcha. So if somebody internalized, they read this material, they read both the books, they really internalize the seductive seven, they have the distinction, what, or what should change in how they operate? What should they see differently? Well, if, if you really get, go deep into these and you really get, start to understand them, which we will do more and more of in the months and years ahead, um, you should start to easily distinguish between real progress and the illusion of progress. Right? You may see uh, you know, your private sector company going through a massive merger and acquisition, which by the way, when you look at our book and the research we did, you'll see how many mergers and acquisitions fell. You'll start to see, is this solving a real problem? Or am I just like giving the illusion of progress because it sounds cool to do a merger and acquisition, um, but it doesn't actually, I don't bring any new capabilities to the problem for the customer and now I've just created chaos in everyone's lives, maybe a one-time blip on my earnings per share, but significant break breakthroughs don't happen. So you'll start to easily, you'll start to become almost frustrated because you'll see all of the stuff going on in your organization and how busy everyone is and all the new strategic initiatives they've got and you'll just start to see this isn't going to help. It may on the margins, you may do let's say a reorg and you get a 2% efficiency improvement because you've consolidated your HR functions. Great. Who cares, right? Think of the time and energy that went into that. And, you know, do it. That's fine. I've done, you know, sometimes you do a reorg, but form follows function. The first thing is, how does the HR reorg really subordinate to the business so the business can get recruitment, retention, talent, um, hiring, firing decisions done ASAP? Like, that's the point, right? That's the point. And if that reorg can solve those real problems for the business, great, but probably not. The real issue in that case is, you know, what's the role of HR? What's the flow of work? What are the policies blocking, quick decision making? Are we not prioritizing our work? There's lots of stuff in operations and flow that contribute to that. But the reorg clearly isn't going to solve those deeper problems. So I want to just pause you really quickly. We'll get back to the podcast here in just a second, but I just wanted to give you a quick heads up about a, a first ever um, live event we're holding for Fulcrum members uh, here in late September at uh, Thanksgiving Point, which is in Lehigh, Utah. So um, if you don't know what the Fulcrum is, we have, we started during COVID, we started an online training, a private online training community for people who wanted to go more in depth with what Chris was teaching and, and what she was posting on LinkedIn. So we have a, a vibrant community there, hundreds of people that are all around the world, and we'd love to have you. And But we, we also realized that, you know, just it was all, all we could do during COVID was be online, but now that we can get back together, we thought, man, it'd be great if we could bring some of these people that we've been, you know, communicating with online. What if we could all just physically get together and, uh, and get to know one another face-to-face? -face? And so that's the idea. So um, I wanna, we're going to do a, a different uh, format here, and I want to have Chris kind of tell you what that's going to look like. But we got a, a new format. Do you want to just quickly just go over that? Yeah, we'll go through it quickly. It, we call it a con shop. It's a blend between a conference and a workshop. I, many of us have gone to conferences before, and you're you know drinking from a fire hose. You have lots of ideas, but never time to apply them. You go back to the office, and the you know you just get sucked back into the you know whirlwind of day to day firefighting. So the work. We call it a con shop because it's a mix between a conference where you'll hear speakers teach, 
but after each lecture or presentation, there will be time for you to apply the concepts um, with people there to help you. Me, I'll be there. Um, it's very, you know, it's it's res there's not a lot of capacity, so it, you know it's limited seating. Right. But we, we will be there to help you actually apply and think through the concepts in your own place of work, etc. You'll be able to learn from others, so that you can learn and apply and walk away from the event with something solid to take back to the workplace. I think you know, the, the, the challenge again why the seductive seven are so seductive is because they're kind of easy, um, mentally and easy. There may be a lot of work, but it's easy in the example of the HR just to you know, kind of do a reorg. <laughs> What's harder is to think deeply about what's blocking HR for delivering high quality services to the business when the business needs it, and how do you actually provide the business a solution so they can recruit top talent while also staying cost competitive. That's a harder problem to solve. So there's this psychological discomfort when there's a problem and you're the leader who's supposed to solve the problem and there's a, there's a uh, warm and fuzzy when you like, okay, I have the solution, I'm gonna try this and you feel like okay the that tension of not knowing what to do is gone now mm -hmm. i just have to execute right yeah and so you're yeah. saying like it's we're so anxious to jump to that solution mode mm -hmm. so we can relieve that tension that we might be jumping to these things that have been done yeah one one thing we talk about in the book is that breakthroughs happen when not by jumping to a new solution but when you reframe the problem and hopefully you know, members of our fulcrum over time are going to, we slow down. I, you know, I still have to remind myself to slow down. What's the problem I'm solving and for whom? You know, we'll have a whole just more segments on just that. But slow down. What's the real problem you're solving? And by the way, shortages or lack of something are not the problem, right? It's always about real people. Who's my primary customer? What's their need? Why can't I solve it? Go back to the education data systems. You know, okay, if our primary customer is a kid and we live back in Maryland in inner city Baltimore with not a great maybe support structure and living in high crime and addiction area and some of those really, really hard yeah. inner cities, yep. uh, there's some pretty tough challenges to face there and setting up a new data system in that example, you know, you, you may be able to pull data to get some insights, but that's not where the breakthrough is going to happen. You know, we can we can know this. There's this common sense BS filter that you can use with the seductive seven. You'll see this stuff and you say, okay, who's the primary customer? Is this new piece of technology that is going to cost me X millions of dollars? Tell me exactly how this is going to make a huge difference for the primary customer. And if you can tell me that in one or two sentences, three maybe, <laughs> I'm all in. But if it's just a list of technical requirements because it's the latest, coolest trend and we think we can integrate AI and predictive you know, forecasting into our systems or whatever we're doing, um, the more you're disconnected and you cannot verbalize the real problem you're solving for your primary customer, the likelihood you're not going to have a big impact. You're going to spend money, time, and energy. You may have marginal improvements, but not breakthroughs. And I, I want to make sure we, we emphasize this one point you said earlier that when, you know, we do have limited time and, and resources, and we all feel busy, we all feel maxed out. And you, I have heard you many, many times, many workshops, speeches, you've talked about 
we as leaders just tend to add and we just layer, 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 layer mm -hmm. instead of taking away, removing mm -hmm. what's not working before yeah. we add. And I think what you said before was if you can start to have this mindset, this, this frame of mind of seeing all the ways that we're fish decorating mm -hmm. and we stop that. We have a fighting chance to create capacity. There's a whole to do lot the of work. capacity there, right? Yeah, like, there's a lot. We, we often talk about start by stopping, and that's really hard as leaders. It's not like a perfect, you know, transition. And not even leaders, you know, of big organizations, leaders in your own life, leaders of your own team. It's, it's it, We can't solve all the problems that come at us or all the ideas. I think it should be very difficult to initiate big changes. Uh because we want to introduce the right changes. And how do we filter out the ones that we should put in and the ones we shouldn't put in? We'll be talking about that more in um, yeah, future, episodes. future episodes. But bottom line, I, I wrote this book and you know the, the money went to the, any, any money that came from the book uh, went to the National Federation of the Blind, an organization that's really important to me, is because there's high stakes, private sector or public sector. We're talking about people's jobs, their careers, uh, investment people who've made investments, either the taxpayer or the shareholder. And these are high stakes things. And if we can't demonstrate after all of our efforts that we're making a, a, a difference in a positive way, stop it. Like, don't let it move forward. There should be a high standard to let work into our system. I mean, let's look at healthcare, for example. There have been so many iterations of dealing with health care financing in this country. We can focus just on Medicaid for a second, which is we spend tons of money on Medicaid in this country. Medicaid medical inflation keeps going up and up, and there's been lots of efforts between um, fee-for-service or capitated rates and managed care and accountable care organizations and now value-based uh, reimbursements. Lots of things to deal with the finance mechanism of Medicaid. It's like all these new strategies, right? And yet, when you look at really where are the services being delivered between the doctor and the patient, that's really the thing that the patient cares about, right? And I'm not saying you don't have to look at the financing, but all of these financing mechanisms have, in my perspective and the research I've done, made minimal impact to the overall uh, health care of our citizens and the cost. Medical inflation grows much higher and there's reasons why that and other cost drivers understand it. But just coming up with a new strategic plan on how to deal with health care financing in this country is not where we, we're going to go. And the bigger issue is how do you help the doctor? This is what matters. The doctor deliver high quality services to the patient when the patient needs it. That's the real problem to solve. And how do you get an entire system from insurance companies and paperwork and the financing mechanisms and all of that to solve the problem within that context? Context matters, right? Just launching a new data system without the context of the entire system. And how do we get the entire system to organize around the key problems to solve for the key people? Without the context, there's, quite frankly, no accountability for what we do as leaders or managers mm -hmm. or what we introduce to our systems. We just can put anything out there. Right. We can reorg all day. And, you know, it just disappears into the bureaucracy. Like, it's got to show up somewhere. Here's my bottom line on this. 
if you're going to, you know, expand your data team by 40% or if you're going to launch like a whole new IT initiative or you're, whatever you're going to do, be accountable for it. It's got to show up. Either you're able to serve more people or the quality for that person goes way up or your cost per, per delivery goes down. You know, we see this in IT systems. IT is expensive. It costs money. But there's no discussion on, did this actually serve more people, make things better, or did costs go down because of this? It's like, no, we just set up a new, cool, latest AI system, and we can't tell you anything about it. So anyway, I'm going on about this because it drives me crazy. But part of this was you've, you know, when you you were running an agency and then you ran for lieutenant governor and you now started to see a statewide perspective and then you came out here to Utah running an agency, then you went to a statewide perspective again, and, and you started this, and then you were over the, this $20 billion budget, and you're seeing for every dollar we actually had to spend, even in a prosperous state, I've heard you say there was four or more dollars worth of requests. Yeah, like we only have, we had a really great economy, we still do. We had lots of money coming in, that was never the issue, it was just never enough. Yes. I mean, there's ne- there'll never be enough money. If any of you out there think you're just going to go to your legislature, to your board, and just get all the money you want to solve your problems, good luck. You know, the question is, and this is why one of the seductive seven is more blaming and accountability, which is, get your own house in order. Get your own house in order. If you're as good as you can really get, you know, then go ask for more money. But in my experience, there's so much hidden capacity in our organizations, and it's a lot around rules of flow and you know some hardcore operational issues but there's so much capacity in our systems when we jump to more money the assumption is oh I'm as good as I can get I'm really really good all my parts of my system are working together nothing's getting stuck there's no policy issues everything's great there's nothing I can do my solution is more money and it can feel that way because we have backlogs our teams are burned out we're overwhelmed you know you go to some of these social service environments child welfare for example you know people get burned out they're high stakes yeah. they're not getting paid as well but you're not going to have the legislature like quadruple people's budget so if you have the courage to face reality as dr goldratt would say is look these are high burnout jobs i can maybe get some incremental money um, to help support some changes but how can i do this work better with the resources i have so that people have protected time so they don't get burnt out. Is there a way that I can even reinvest some of my overhead functions into the front line to reduce caseload sizes or to help reduce the pressure? Or how am I even batching my caseloads that makes it so cumbersome for frontline people? There's a whole issue there just with child welfare. And again, I'm not saying you don't at some point need more money. You may. But when we start with how can I do more with the resources I have? What have I missed? That's always the interesting question, right? What have I missed? What do I not know about that could actually help solve that problem? And what can we stop doing that we're spending time and money on? Yes. That we could then reinvest. That would free up some capacity. Absolutely. All of our overhead functions, a lot of our strategic planning. You know, what, is of, the, what is the phrase? You're, you're reading about Churchill, and there's like a phrase that... How concentrate your power. I, yes. I love Church, Winston Churchill. I've been going back and rereading all of his famous speeches, and he... You know, he's just talking about that there's this really critical moment against uh, fighting against Germany and bringing the allies together, and he talks about the need to concentrate power. And when we're in the seductive seven, our mindsets are usually, how many things can I fix and improve? It's kind of like we peanut butter our power. Yeah. Like we kind of spread it as, across the whole thing, but it's so micro-thin it doesn't... Do anything. Maybe yeah. do anything. So. Yeah. So the seductive seven... 
just look for them in your organization. Look for them in your own life. Um, you'll learn more about them in the months to come. But know that they by themselves won't give you the breakthrough results that you want and that your customers deserve. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to close. I hope you enjoyed this format. You can DM us on the Fulcrum to let us know if you like this format, if you want us to keep doing this. We plan to do uh, several more uh, episodes like this on you know, going a little deeper dive on each, uh, each one of the Seductive Seven. If you're listening to this, you're not a member of the Fulcrum, you can just go to www.jointhefulcrum.com. You can learn more and ask to become a member. And you can pick up Chris's and Ishai's books on Amazon, both paperback and Kindle versions. Uh, if you are not already, be sure to follow Chris on LinkedIn. She does she posts new insights every Tuesday and Thursday. And finally, stop decorating the fish and start making a difference. Yeah. And we'll talk to you next episode.